Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Vaccinations are mandatory for public school kids. But should families be allowed to get exemptions? We do not believe that the state has any right to force us to have any kind of foreign substance injected into us. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We look at the contentious vaccine debate in Maine and Connecticut. And we go beyond the basic sex education requirements in New Hampshire. You have to like, have permission before you like act upon you know, the sexual things. Plus, Vermont has never sent a woman to Congress. What's up with that? I've been asking that question of myself. You know, why? Why are we at the bottom? We'll tackle that and what can be done about it. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. The controversial debate over vaccination exemptions is ramping up in Maine and Connecticut. There's a bill in the Connecticut legislature that would ban vaccine exemptions for religious reasons. Nicole Leonard is a health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, and she joins me in the studio to talk about the bill and people's reactions. Nicole, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. So that bill would apply to Connecticut kids in public schools. Where do things stand with the religious exemption right now? Yeah, so with religious exemptions, uh, any child who's attending public schools today, they either get all their vaccinations, the required vaccinations by the state, or they get one of two exemptions. And one of them is a religious exemption, which means parents can opt out of the required vaccines on religious grounds. And the other exemption that exists is for uh, they can do the same for medical purposes. Okay. And so how would the proposed bill change that? It would change it in a big way because um, it would eliminate the religious exemption. So parents would not be able to do that anymore. Um, the medical exemption would still exist, but the religious exemption, if it goes away, those kids ideally would not be able to attend public school if they don't have their required vaccinations. Who's behind this bill? Why propose it in the first place? Uh, there's a large group of Democrats that are essentially behind the bill. And one of those uh, representatives, Jonathan Steinberg, he heads the Connecticut Public Health Committee, um, and he's one of the representatives spearheading this bill. The intention of the bill is all about preserving the system that has been shown to minimize, if not eradicate, highly infectious diseases that used to plague our state and our country and the planet only a couple of generations ago. Now, this debate is, it's pretty feisty. Um, and last week you went to public hearings at the state's legislative office building. 
what was the mood like there besides feisty, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I've never seen it so crowded before with people who were coming to show their support or opposition to this bill. And uh, a very vocal crowd were people who are against this bill, who people who are against mandated vaccines. Why do they say they're, um, I guess, in favor of a religious exemption and against this bill? I mean, obviously, a lot of people are against this bill uh, in this particular community of people because they feel it goes against their religious rights. Other reasons why they might be against it. Some people um, claim that vaccines, they think they're unsafe, even though there's a lot of science um, accepted by most global and national medical communities that vaccines are safe and they are effective. Um, One of the advocates that we spoke to, he's a parent, his name is uh, Brian Festa, and he represents the Connecticut Freedom Alliance, and um, he thinks this is a governmental overreach. We do not believe that the state has any right to force us to have any kind of foreign substance or foreign object injected into us, into our bodies. He's advocating on this group of of parents, and they do represent a minority of parents in the total state of Connecticut that um, the majority of parents do support uh, required vaccines. Um, But he is representing a voice among the smaller community that really wants to make these decisions for their children, for themselves. So there's obviously a a vocal minority of parents who are against the bill. Have you also been hearing from parents who showed up to that public hearing and are in favor of the bill? What was unique about this year's public hearing as opposed to previous years, uh, and there was a public informational hearing last year, which was a little different, um, was that among the very uh, vocal people who were there opposing the bill, there were people, uh, medical students uh, from Yale and other uh, schools in the state, physicians, medical experts and researchers, and parent advocates who were there this time. There are parents who testified who have children that are immunocompromised or who are going through maybe chemotherapy. They can't get Vaccines, And so they're protected by something called herd immunity, um, which is it provides a level of protection for a community that really uh, limits the risk of disease outbreak. Right, because that's a really important point, because if there are more religious exemptions, then herd immunity is less. And these families with kids who just cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons are then at greater risk. Right. Right. And that's the argument that a lot of legislators have made both in the past and now it's an argument that's being made by officials in the Connecticut Department of Public Health, by Governor Ned Lamont here in Connecticut to protect the majority of children, older seniors who are uh, more at risk of illness uh, to really protect the greater public. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Nicole Leonard is a health reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Thanks for talking. Thanks for having me. The bill made it through committee in Connecticut this week and now goes to the General Assembly for debate. In Maine, the vaccination exemptions for non-medical reasons are really high. They're currently more than double the national average. So last year, Maine passed a law. It's a lot like the bill being considered in Connecticut. Maine got rid of the religious and philosophical exemptions for vaccines. But now there's a voter referendum to repeal that new law and reinstate those exemptions. It's on the state ballot next week on Super Tuesday. And whether the repeal effort is successful or not, Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports that it's stoking the memories of polio survivors. 
people who lived through a time when immunizations were not available for certain diseases. Sitting at her dining room table in West Gardner, 72-year-old Ann Crocker sifts through a pile of photos from her childhood. This was a picture of me showing my family on that Sunday. Here, look, I can take my first step. Crocker was taking that step after being seriously ill. I had polio when I had just turned five, three years before the sock vaccine came out. It was September of 1952, and Crocker remembers she wasn't feeling well. She was sitting on a couch in her family's home in Livermore Falls, drinking a cup of juice. At the time, polio paralyzed more than 16,000 people a year in the U.S. and caused more than 1,800 deaths. Crocker's mother worried about the virus, and Crocker tried to reassure her. And I moved around. See, I'm okay, Mom. I'm a little tired. And she says, why don't you lie down on the couch? And the next time I went to reach for the cup, I could not move my arms. Her mother and grandfather rushed her to the hospital, where she was placed in isolation. As she lay in bed, Crocker was able to see her grandfather in the hallway outside. I remember moaning and want and wanting my grandfather because we were close. He lived with us, and he, I could hear the talking, and he says, I can't come in. Crocker says she was paralyzed up to her chin, and doctors and nurses wrapped her in warm, wet blankets to loosen her muscles. After three weeks, she was moved to a rehabilitation hospital in Bath, where she would spend nearly a year trying to regain movement. We were only able to see our family for two hours on Sundays. That's it. Each week, Crocker concentrated on showing her family a new skill. First, it was moving her fingers, giving a full smile then rolling over, sitting up, and finally taking a step. She says it was grueling, painful work. Eventually, she was able to walk again, but that didn't mean she was cured. You don't just have it and get over it. It's still with you, and it, it can cause problems later on. See? Crocker it's rolls like up her jeans to reveal two knee this. braces— in her mid-30s, she says she started to experience what's called post-polio syndrome. Her muscles began to weaken. Over the decades, she's added braces for her leg, knees, hands, and neck. Crocker says it's painful to walk even the few steps it takes to get her from the kitchen to her living room. Her experience is not unique. The brace goes all the way down to my toes and all the way right up to the top of my leg. I have to wear that every day because without it, I, I can't walk. 66-year-old Reginald Arsenault of Mexico, Maine, says he got polio when he was two or three, around the time the vaccine first became available. Arsenault was vaccinated, but doctors suspect he already had the virus. I was on the, actually on the tail end of the epidemic. Arsenault says he couldn't move anything below his neck. He was hospitalized for four months and says his recovery extended throughout his childhood. He had to relearn to walk several times. I've had six surgeries altogether, four on one, my right leg, which was originally affected by polio. My left leg, they put uh, steel staples in my, uh, my knees to stop the growth so the right leg would catch up. Arsenault also had surgery on his left arm, which is shorter than his right. Like Ann Crocker, he experienced post-polio syndrome in his 30s. He could no longer work. Over the years, he says he's had to get used to letting things go. It's quite an adjustment. The, you know, the last probably 10 years has gotten worse where, you know, a lot of things I used to be able to do, like mow the lawn, snowblower, shovel, uh, I can just barely do anymore. 
Diana Abbott of Moody has also had to adjust to a different life after she contracted polio as a 15-year-old in Kennebunkport. It was 1955. I had not been vaccinated, and it came out two weeks later. Dr. Salk's vaccine. Abbott says she had been feeling ill, and when she woke up one morning, she fell to the floor, unable to walk. It was late November, she says, and she wouldn't return home again till the following summer, to a different life from before. She could never walk again without using crutches and leg braces. It changed it completely, because you're going from a person who was very active walking. I was a cheerleader at the time, and then all of a sudden... Everything is taken away from you. Everything. In school, Abbott says she relied on boys to carry her up and down stairs. She battled doubts in college about whether she could complete a teaching degree, but she graduated and taught elementary school for 25 years. Abbott says she retired early when she began to develop post-polio syndrome. By her 60s, she had to use a wheelchair. She's now 80 and says she's relegated to her house most of the time. Every day, something goes amiss. It's missing out of your life. Abbott misses being able to just get up and walk to the bathroom or step into the shower. She lives less than a mile from the beach, but even that can feel far. I can remember the feeling of standing in the water, and when the water comes in and it goes out, the different feeling that you have on your feet. Oh, I would love to be able to just go down there and stand and have that feeling in my feet. Abbott, Arsenault, and Crocker are all members of the post-polio support group of Maine. Each of them says they're worried about the upcoming referendum that could repeal Maine's new law that aims to boost immunization rates by eliminating non-medical exemptions. Arsenault says he shows skeptical parents his leg brace. I mean, I'll go to the doctor's office or any place, and I'll hear young mothers say, well, no, I'm not going to have my child protected against this. And I'll roll up in pant leg. I said, listen, if you don't want your child to have to wear one of these, seven days a week, 14 hours a day, didn't have at it. Supporters of the repeal effort say there haven't been enough outbreaks or a large enough drop in vaccination rates to do away with non-medical exemptions. But Diana Abbott disagrees. I want people to look at me and say, no, we need to vaccine because I don't want this to happen to anybody. I really don't. It's just too traumatic. At its peak, the post-polio support group had 900 members. That's dropped almost in half as people have aged and passed away. But what's comforting, says Ann Crocker, is that vaccination has meant no members with new cases of polio are joining the group. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patty White. As the new coronavirus continues to spread through mainland China and has popped up in different parts of the world, scientists are racing to create a vaccine. The COVID-19 virus has now infected tens of thousands of people and killed more than 2,000. WBUR's Angus Chen visited some of the biotech companies in New England that are trying to develop vaccines to stop a global pandemic. On the fourth floor of a repurposed Providence mill, scientists at Epivax are growing cells inside a sterile glass and steel case. This is the cell culture space. Don't worry, there's nothing dangerous in here. (laughs) Epivax co-founder Annie DeGroote says her team has been working feverishly to stop something that is dangerous, the new coronavirus. It has been fairly stressful for a lot of us. But we're, I mean, I think the stress is okay when you're trying to address a public health emergency, which this this is what we have. 
Epivax is one of several biotech companies and labs around the world developing vaccines to fight the coronavirus epidemic. DeGroote says the race began in late January after Chinese researchers sequenced the virus's genome and made the data available to scientists. As soon as the sequence was published, it said, could we please analyze the sequence for potential vaccine design? And three hours later, we had at least the essential elements for designing a vaccine. Epivax is working on a vaccine that uses peptides, fragments of protein that help the body's immune system recognize the virus and attack it. DeGroote says this type of vaccine can be ready for testing within weeks, but it has drawbacks. It can't be mass-produced, and DeGroote says it doesn't stop infection. It fortifies your immune system so that you don't get sick when you actually get infected, and I would prefer to have that than nothing. And DeGroote says it might help slow the epidemic long enough for other vaccines to enter the fight. Government agencies like the National Institutes of Health and some health organizations are helping to fund a variety of vaccine approaches. Boston-based Moderna and CureVac, which has offices in Cambridge, are both working on vaccines. CureVac CEO Dan Manichella says they're also feeling the pressure to finish the work before the virus mutates. So it's much more fast-moving and much more infectious than SARS um, ever was. And so we're just racing time and the, the virus itself. SARS is another coronavirus that killed hundreds of people in 2003. To combat this new coronavirus, CureVac and Moderna are using a technique based on RNA, a kind of genetic blueprint for proteins. Manichella says human cells use the RNA in the vaccine to create pieces of the virus, and this teaches the body how to neutralize the pathogen. It's exactly what it looks like, um, which is what's fantastic. So So the body knows exactly what it's looking for to fight off that particular virus. Then the immune system can crush the virus before it makes you sick. These RNA vaccines are still very new. There aren't any that have been approved by the FDA yet. But immunologist Dr. Michael Mina at Harvard University says they have enormous potential. So it's really an in- ingenious design. If, it, if they were able to roll something out in the next month or two, I think yeah, it could have a really big difference. Within the next month or two, Mina says it'll still be early enough for a vaccine to help contain the epidemic. But if scientists can't push a vaccine into the clinic until a year or six months from now, Mina thinks that may be too late. The countdown isn't lost on CureVac's Manichella. We're going as fast as we possibly can, um, but you, you, know, you still are putting this in human beings, so you have to be you know, very, very careful about, about what, you're, what you're doing here. Best case scenario, Manichella says, his company's vaccine will be ready to test in humans later this year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. After the break, the sex education New Hampshire teens get in school and the impact of climate change on dating. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Hey, friends. We're with NHPR. We're just wondering if you had a minute to talk. We just had a quick question or two. About? Uh, about sex ed. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. That was Jimmy Gutierrez from New Hampshire Public Radio, and he asked people what they remember learning in sex education in the state. Well, I remember first we learned about puberty. Don't have sex, you'll die. It was just kind of like, these are condoms, this is birth control. That was the main drive, was abstinence education. 
Well, back in my day, there was no such thing as sex ed. This next segment is all about sex ed. So consider this your warning. Jimmy Gutierrez joins us now to talk about his reporting on sex ed for the podcast, The Second Greatest Show on Earth. Hi there, Jimmy. Hey, Morgan. And Sarah Willa Ernst, the Couch Fellow at NHPR, also reported on Sex Ed for the podcast. Sarah, welcome to Next. Hey, Morgan. So let's get started with the basics for sex education in New Hampshire schools. You kind of divvied up the reporting. And Jimmy, this was an area that you focused on. Um, So tell us, what are students required to learn in New Hampshire? Not much. Um, Pretty much (laughs) HIV education and then um, conversations around STIs or STDs, and that's about it. That is super minimal. Do do schools go beyond that? Uh, some schools do. One in particular was the Portsmouth School District, and we talked with uh, Portsmouth students, uh, teachers, as well as uh, their superintendent, Steve Zadravac. The state generally sets you know a, a baseline standard. But I think most districts look at that as, uh, okay, but what else do we need to address here? So Steve Zedrebeck is really aware that students are coming in contact with sexuality throughout their entire days, throughout their lives. Uh, So they try to be very conscientious of having this a larger point of their education. And they, they teach something that's called comprehensive sex education, right? Correct. So what are like the ways in which that goes beyond? Yeah, so comprehensive sex ed is really thought of as being both age appropriate and medically accurate. And they'll touch on things from HIV and STIs to healthy relationships to consent. Uh, Those conversations will morph uh, age appropriately. But basically in New Hampshire, they'll only get comprehensive sex ed at their school if the district pursues it or if there's funding. Is that right? That's right. Do you have a sense of how New Hampshire's sex ed requirements compare to other New England states? We have a vague sense, so it's really difficult to find what is being required. States like Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, are very much like New Hampshire where they do not require sex ed. It's more of that local control kind of model district by district. What do we think is appropriate? What do we have the appetite to kind of teach? Whereas Maine and Vermont require some form of sex ed to be taught in in schools past just the HIV, STI models, um, conversations that include sexuality within healthy relationships. Okay, Sarah, I want to bring you into the conversation now. You looked at whether or not there is LGBTQ inclusive sex education in the state. What did you find? So I found that LGBTQ inclusive sex ed is not mandated in New Hampshire, nor is it even mentioned in the state law. Um, There are actually a few places around the country where inclusive sex ed is mandatory. That would include California and Oregon. But on the flip side, there are also places where LGBTQ sex ed is explicitly illegal, like South Carolina, or even places like Texas where condemning homosexuality is part of the curriculum. Um, But when it comes to specifically New Hampshire, we did find one report um, by the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, also known as GLSEN. And they said that only 12 percent of queer students that participated in the survey received an inclusive sex education at school. So, you know, there does seem to be a gap for these kinds of students. There's this great story um, that you guys have in the podcast um, told by Chuck Rhodes. Um, who teaches sex ed at Portsmouth High School. Sarah, can you kind of set this tape up for us? 
Yeah. So at one point in Dr. Rose's very long career, he has a very robust resume. um, He was a professor at the University of New Hampshire teaching the human sexuality course there. And in the class, they cover LGBTQ inclusive sex ed. And they also included something called the Kinsey Scale. Um, It's essentially a tool to help people self-identify. The the scale goes from zero to six. And zero means you identify exclusively as heterosexual, six meaning exclusively homosexual, and many people fall in between. Anyway, so in this class, he very distinctively remembers a girl named Katie um, who had a particular reaction to the Kinsey scale when he was writing it on the board. And I turned around and uh, she was crying. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I say? Um, so I said, Katie, are you okay? Uh, and she said, I'm, I'm crying because um, if I had known this in high school, it would have made my life so much easier. It wouldn't have been so painful. And, boy, that, was a, that, that stuck with me and still sticks with me. And, I've, and that's what I teach. That's part of my sexuality unit. I teach for the Katies. And I think moments like this prove to Dr. Rhodes that this kind of sex education is really important. Another thing you both looked at was consent and what teenagers are absorbing. And Sarah, you talked to teen girls at the Boys and Girls Club in Manchester, and they were talking about feeling pressured. The older guys, too, like last year, they're on a hunt for little girls. What I'm telling you? Yeah, we're too. There's a, in high school, there'd be kids that are not even supposed to be seniors looking no. towards little girls. No. Like, it's so they're weird. Like, no, like, they're like, like high seniors like, going for like seventh grade. No, not graded. seniors. Yeah, the they're ones like, they're like, like juniors. They're okay. like juniors and sophomores, and they're like, like they want like, the eight girls so bad at our school. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. They just want little girls so it's bad. It's crazy. they know they can take advantage of them. And I feel like, and I feel weird too, because like I'm young and like, I, I, like, I don't know, I just like look at myself different and like, and like, like people that do it at young age, like I just don't know how. So in that tape, there were two girls out of a group of nine girls. Uh, their names were Janaya and Genti. And sitting with them for an hour, I think it was pretty obvious that there is a lot of pressure when it comes to being a 15-year-old girl. And I think pressure came from a lot of different places in their life. I think they got pressure from boys. I think they had pressure to fit in with their friends and their peers. I also think they got pressure from their parents um, that want to kind of uh, keep them their little girls and keep them pure in a lot of ways. Um, but regardless, I was extremely impressed by how empowered they felt um, to st- stand up for themselves, to speak out when they see something either happening to themselves or to other friends that um, is uncomfortable. Jimmy, you talked to the teenage boys at Boys and Girls Club and talked about consent. Um, let's, let's also take a listen to that conversation you had with them. Have you guys learned about consent? And if so, what do you understand about it? Like, it's like you have to, like, have permission before you, like, act upon, you know, the sexual things. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what consent is, you know, Get, getting, like, granted, like, permission in a way to, like, do anything, pretty sure, consent. But, like, yeah. To me, consent is, like, when we both mutually agree and also when we're both, like, comfortable enough to do it, like, we're both, like, ready not, like, not, it's, like, not, like, 75, 25. It's supposed to be, like, 50, 50. Like, we're supposed to both like, mutually agree that like, we're ready to do this, like, it's... That's consent to me. And who is that, Jimmy? So that was uh, Mohammed uh, Aiden Namuftar, um, also from the Boys and Girls Club. And you talked about this tension between consent and also social expectations with these mm-hmm. boys. What did they have to say to you about that? 
you know, a big takeaway from the series and, and what the three, the three boys kind of echoed is that there are still a ton of expectations to kind of be emotionally repressive as, as a boy, as well as kind of seen as sexually dominant, uh, as far as like being desired, uh, having lots of partners. And so here's, this is a piece of tape from uh, Muhammad talking about that internal conflict. Like as a teenage boy, when you act tough, it's supposed to give you like clout or like some type of like popularity or like the girls will start feeling you and the girls will use you just for that. So by him being repressive, by him maybe not buying into uh, the ideals of consent, it makes him more appealing or at least at least that's what's been internalized. Wow. That's quite a tension to, to try mm. to be wrestling with at that right. age. So, so I want to go back to the broader debate. Um, and a big part of talking about sex education is deciding what to teach And we've heard about comprehensive sex ed. Then there's also abstinence-based education. Jimmy, where does that factor into sex ed in New Hampshire these days? From the reporting, we couldn't find any examples of that existing in public education. However, when we talked with homeschooling groups and educators that were familiar with uh, the private school, they confirmed that these are the places that you're going to find both of those kind of educations, steering far away from the examples that we heard from earlier with Dr. Chuck Rhodes and and more comprehensive sex ed classes. So if parents feel like the curriculum in school is inadequate, Sarah, what are some ways parents can and and do supplement? So first in New Hampshire, there actually is an opt-out law. If a parent doesn't want their kid in a sex ed class that's at school, then they have the right to take them out of it. But on top of that, there are resources that do exist outside of school. One that we found was the OWL program. It's a comprehensive sex ed program at the Unitarian Universalist Churches, um, as well as online resources. And for inclusive sex ed, the nonprofit Advocates for Youth, they've developed a free curriculum on their website. And there are also resources on the GLSEN website as well. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for talking about your reporting. Thanks for having us. That was Sarah Willa Ernst, a reporting fellow at New Hampshire Public Radio, and Jimmy Gutierrez, a producer at the station. The reporting on sex ed is part of a two-part series on the podcast, The Second Greatest Show on Earth. You can find the show at nhpr.org. When you're getting really good vibes from someone and want to figure out what you have in common, you might ask, what kind of music do you like? Or what are your hobbies? But WCAI's Eve Zekoff reports that a growing number of millennials and Gen Zers are also asking a different kind of dating question. How do you feel about climate change? In Buzzards Bay, Mahoney's on Main is a cool bar. Exposed brick, framed American flag, Celtic punk bands in the background. Can I uh, start you off with a drink if you're ready? In a booth by the bar is Matt White, a 26-year-old from Wareham. He pulls out his phone to show me one of his dating apps. It's called Hinge. Up pops his profile. So there's my beautiful face. First picture, White competing at an athletic event. Then White in Iceland. At a bonfire. At a Red Sox game. So Hinge has different prompts that you can answer questions to. One of them is, I won't shut up about. And my answer was, climate change, let's get real people. 
White is one of a growing number of hopeful singles who say that attitudes about climate change can be a dating deal breaker. In all honesty, do you really think you could date someone if they didn't see climate change as a problem? Yeah, probably no. You, you think of it as like a litmus test. I, I think it points to, you know, how maybe self-centered a person might be and, and how conscious they are of others. He's not alone. In a recent survey of political attitudes, 51% of people said dating someone with opposite views on climate change would be anywhere from difficult to impossible. Last month, the popular dating site OkCupid announced it would let users filter out climate change deniers from their potential matches. And in an admittedly unscientific review of Gen Z and millennial dating apps from around the Cape region, I found dozens of profiles with lines like these. You should not go out with me if you don't dance or care about the environment. Let's make sure we're on the same page about climate change. A social cause I care about. Improving the environment, especially the ocean. Environmental justice and climate-induced migration. Cleaning the planet and endangered species. Saving Saving the the planet. planet. Recycling is hot. Welcome to the new age of climate change daters. I do think it's a thing. That's Meredith Goldstein advice columnist for the Boston Globe, and host of the Love Letters podcast. I think when people are talking about climate change, they're talking about how do you process the facts we hear in the world? How do you think about the future? What entitlement do you feel to this land we live on? Um, it like means all of these big things. Matt White says earlier this fall, he was sending messages back and forth with a woman he met on a dating app and found his interest in climate change could cool things off pretty quickly. She's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm watching this climate change documentary on, on the, you know, the different presidential candidates and how they view on climate change. And then from there, she was like, so should we get the politics discussion out of the way now? And basically, it kind of went down a rabbit hole and we stopped talking after that point. Um, I'll leave it at that and be respectful. But, you know. Other couples, though, have been able to keep the conversation going. Uh, We started hanging out more and more, and then it just eventually turned into liking each other. 20-year-old Anna Wadsworth of Falmouth has been dating her boyfriend for about a month, though they've known each other since high school. She first realized they had different perspectives on climate change when she saw him throw away something that could have been recycled. She called him out on it. I feel like he definitely agrees that climate change is a problem. I think he's more on the side of, like, what can I do if, like, no one else is doing anything about it, which I agree with, but it's also, like... If everyone has an opinion, what's going to change? Because they've got history, she says, she knows he's a caring person, and they can disagree. There's already things I knew and liked about him that, like, wanted me to be with him. So, you know, climate change wasn't, like, the first and foremost that gave me, like, a red light of, no, that's a bad idea. (laughs) So as views on climate change seep into the exhausting, exhilarating, exasperating search for love, how can we find balance? Goldstein, the advice columnist, says the key is to keep your heart open. No one quality or interest can tell you everything you need to know about a partner. There are people who are incredible to the world and the earth and perhaps not incredible to each other, Um, vice versa. There are ways that people can be civic-minded and perhaps they are not doing what they need to do with their garbage. For Anna Wadsworth, it's important to focus on the things she and her boyfriend do have in common. We both love well, Jack White and the White Stripes a lot. Um, Queens of the Stone For the New England Age, News Collaborative, cool I'm Eve Zucka. Really um, he's very caring. 
coming up, ice harvesting is not the necessity it once was. But in some parts of New England, the tradition lives on. Plus, Vermont has never sent a woman to Congress. We'll talk about why. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. The state of Vermont has never sent a woman to Congress. Not to the House, not to the Senate, no women to Washington. And Vermont Public Radio listeners wanted to know why. So reporter Emily Corwin dug into that question for the podcast Brave Little State. In 2018, Mississippi elected Cindy Hyde-Smith to Congress, and that was the moment Vermont earned this special distinction. It is now the only state never to have elected a woman to Congress. What's up with that? I've been asking that question of myself. You know, why? Why are we at the bottom This, if you don't recognize her voice, is Madeline Kunin. She became governor of Vermont three days before I was born, in January 1985. I and some friends of mine kind of celebrated when I was elected, not only for myself and my own victory, but we were convinced the dam was broken. Uh, Now there'd be a, a deluge of women governors following in, in, in my footsteps. And that just does, hasn't happened. In 1990, Cunin decided not to run for a fourth term. Vermonters still haven't elected another woman to that office or sent one to D.C. It's been 30 years. I just hope I get to see that day. So why? Why no women? The first thing you might think of is bias. But voters in all states have bias. What Vermont doesn't have is opportunity. That's the biggest challenge facing people in Vermont. This is Jean Sinsdak with the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. First, she says, we're small. California sends 55 people to Washington. Vermont, just three. Leahy, Sanders, and Welch. Next, the Vermont electorate is pretty blue. It's gone for every Democratic presidential nominee since 1992. You might think that that would work in women's favor. It doesn't. The number one thing that prevents newcomers from coming into the political process is the power of incumbency. Sinstack says historically, elected office holders have looked like our delegation. Older, white, and male. And when you run for re-election the odds are very much in your favor. So if the white men get there first, like they did, chances are they're going to stay, especially if there isn't another party taking them on. When you're talking about places where races are essentially non-competitive, so deeply blue states or districts or deeply red states or districts, um, there's just not as much opportunity. You know, the incumbents tend to benefit even more. Vermont's youngest representative, Peter Welch, is 71 and has been in Congress for 13 years. Senator Bernie Sanders has been there for nearly 30. Pat Leahy, the longest-serving member of the Senate, has been in office for 45 years. And according to a recent VPR Vermont PBS poll, their favorability ratings are through the roof. Get this, women approve of all of them by about 15 percentage points over men. 
Who would spend their time and money challenging those kinds of numbers? Hello? Across the river, things are different. Hi, Representative. How are you doing? This is Emily with VPR. I'm good. New Hampshire Congresswoman Ann McLean Custer calls me from a car in Nashua, New Hampshire. I want to know how things go in a purple state. She says it was the weekend of President Obama's inauguration when she found out a House seat, which had recently passed from a Republican man to a Democratic one, was being vacated. Custer jumped in. So I ran for this seat um, as a new candidate. She lost in a nail-biter to the Republican. When she ran again, a National Democratic congressional PAC put her campaign on a list they call, quote, red to blue. It offers support to candidates they think can flip seats. And I would be invited to events with um, then-Majority Leader uh, Pelosi. The PAC invited her to parties with influential people, gave her funding, and, of course, she worked her tail off. And in 2012, I won. Custer went to Congress in the first all-female congressional delegation in U.S. history. Today, eight of the ten candidates in the Democratic Congressional PAC's Red to Blue program are women. Two are people of color. None are from Vermont. Of course, it's already blue. Our question askers don't just want to know why Vermont has never sent a woman to Congress, but what is being done to change that? One question asker from Brattleboro named Catherine says she wants Senators Leahy and Sanders to think hard before running for re-election. And it's a, ultimately it's a personal choice how long people want to stay. But I think it's important to think about the consequences of the choices that we're making and what it stops from happening. Neither Senator Leahy nor Senator Sanders agreed to an interview. Congressman Welch says this. Well, the ultimate decision about who serves and how long they serve obviously belongs uh, to Vermonters. And they've got to make that decision and have an opportunity to do that uh, in the case of Congress for every two years, in the case of Senate for every six years. Eventually, a seat will be vacant because of retirement, or perhaps more imminently, election to the nation's highest office. SINSDAC, with the Center for American Women in Politics, says the most important thing Vermonters can do to elect a woman is get ready now, whether that's organizing or fundraising or something else. We know from research that women are far less likely to be asked to run for office by political influencers. So, you know, you're talking about party officials, um, other elected officials, sort of people like, you know, top members of the community. Studies show that women are also less likely than men to just up and decide to run on their own. And that is where the Vermont chapter of a national nonprofit called Emerge comes in. It recruits and trains women to run for office. Women like Alyssa Black. She started thinking about running after talking with her own state representative. Black's son had recently died by suicide with a firearm, and she was at the state house advocating for a 24-hour waiting period during gun purchases. When her state rep compared that waiting period with an abortion restriction, she was offended. I was just incensed. So Black decided to challenge him in the next election. But she was filled with the same self-doubt research shows stopped so many women from running. 
And then the realities set in and you think, well, no, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. What have you done in your life to make you qualified? How do you even run? That's when she remembered an article she'd read about Emerge, that program that trains women who want to run for office. During intensive weekend workshops, Emerge teaches you how to write a stump speech, strategies for door knocking. So Black signed up. And we did fundraising one weekend, which is terrifying, especially when you're asking for that money for you. And, you know, they went through strategies and then... Then they made us actually start doing it, and we all did it. And at the end, you're like, I can do this. Former Governor Madeline Kunin started the Vermont chapter of Emerge in 2013. Today, 35 Emerge alums are in elected office, 17 in the Vermont legislature. We may not have had a governor who's female in three decades, and we may never have sent a woman to Congress. But get this, the Vermont State House has better gender equity than almost any other U.S. state. That's Emily Corwin on Vermont Public Radio's podcast, Brave Little State. You can hear the rest of the episode at bravelittlestate.org. Here's one tidbit, though. VPR polled Vermonters to see if they thought it was a problem the state had never sent a woman to Washington. 46% said it was not. Ice harvesting was a thriving industry in 19th century New England. Workers would use large, jagged-toothed saws to cut heavy blocks from frozen rivers, lakes, and ponds. They'd pack the ice with sawdust and sell it around the world. Then came electric refrigeration. Ice cutting became all but obsolete. But as Susan Sharon of Maine Public Radio reports, there are still a few places where the tradition lives on. It's a postcard-perfect winter scene, a small snow-covered pond framed by tall trees and a rustic barn. Here in South Bristol, Maine, Ken Lincoln and several other men are out early in the morning doing what they learned to do as kids. Cut that next one. This one right here? Yeah. They're removing the first blocks of ice from the pond. Lincoln is the president of the Thompson Icehouse Preservation Corporation, which operates an on-site museum and sponsors the old-fashioned ice harvest every President's Day weekend. He wears thick coveralls and ice grippers on his boots. This is slippery work. Every year, somebody ends up in the pond, but no tragedies. We grab them out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Steve, take them too and go that way out. First, a checkerboard-style design is carved onto the pond's surface using a tool called a scribe. Then, volunteers use handsaws and ice picks to break off the blocks one row at a time. People of all ages are encouraged to participate. Nine-year-old Isaac Ezel is helping his father James guide the ice blocks along an open channel of water toward the ice house, where they will be stored. I was doing this since I was six. You did before you were six. I think we had you here when you were four for your first time. Lincoln himself grew up skating on the pond. He also learned traditional ice harvesting techniques. 
and when he got older, worked for a small commercial ice operation that ended several decades ago. If we didn't do this, it would go away and be forgotten. And this is one way to keep it a working history. By mid-morning, a crowd has gathered. The 250-pound ice blocks are pushed up a wooden ramp and hoisted by pulley into the ice house, which is insulated with several inches of sawdust. The ice blocks glide in like giant high-speed hockey pucks. Energetic wranglers dodge the heavy blocks, spear them with long picks, and stack them one layer at a time until the ice house is nearly full. It's very scary to watch. Karen Pride is from Portland. You can see that if something did not go right, it would be very bad. Outside, Joanna Gavro and Justin Smith of Portland are sitting in heated folding chairs, eating chili and chowder, and watching three generations of volunteers take part in the effort. In the past, the couple have helped out, but Gavro says this year they were concerned about the thickness of the ice. It looked a little slippery, a little thin, and I don't have the greatest balance, so we thought we'd just be more spectators this year. But support and spirit. This year, the ice is about nine inches thick. That's several inches less than normal. But Ken Lincoln says winter seems to be arriving a little later each year. Still, it's enough ice to sell to local fishermen and boaters and to save for a popular ice cream social in July. More importantly, Lincoln says, it's a way to keep a chapter of New England history frozen in time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. That's a wrap on our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Emily Quirk. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 